Hi there, my name is Chris Stevenson. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be the global CMO for PhD Media Network, and it's great to be talking to you today. Chris, thank you so much for being here today. An absolute pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So I've been reading some business books, Chris. Uh, I recently read uh, Rashad Tabakawala's book. Uh, he was also on the podcast. You know, he talks about staying human in the age of data. I just went through the PhD book, uh, Shift. Uh, and you guys talk about putting people and humanity back in the driver's seat. It's very interesting that, you know, these two books are coming out at the same time, exploring what I think are very similar themes. I wanted to ask you this, Chris, who or what has been in the driver's seat up until now? And why is it important to put people back in there? Hmm. And um, it's a great, I mean, it's a really, really great question. I mean, I think we would say, and, and the reason we wrote the book and um, the reason we wrote Shift um, was very much the, the, our observation was that during the long decade, technology had been in the driving seat. So what's the long decade? The long decade was this period from 2007, really through to about 2020, where we saw these incredible changes to uh, the marketing ecosystem driven by technology adoption, platform development, data-driven capabilities. We saw these phenomenal pl proliferation of capabilities um, to the marketer's toolkit throughout that long decade, 2007 through 2020. However, what also happened during that long decade was a decrease in marketing effectiveness. So what's going on there? We got this 13-year period where we had more data, we had more tech, we had more capabilities, we had more options and formats and ways and places and spaces to engage with people, but marketing effectiveness declined. Um, and we really wanted to understand that, and that's what's inherited to shift. And our, our contention really in the book is that what was in the driving seat was the tech, the platforms, and they brought huge benefits, huge benefits to the system, but we were missing the human part of the equation. And that, that considered creative, lateral human element um, is what uh, we're now seeing brought to bear. And we're seeing actually, we think the tides turned on this and shift talks to this, the tides turned, and we think we're beginning to see um, uh, 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 an improvement in, in marketing effectiveness. And it's because there's been a realization and a wake up that um, marketing's had a bit of a midlife crisis and marketing is emerging from this crisis with a much clearer view that the tech and the data has got to work for the business. It's got to work for the brands. It's got to work for the marketers rather than businesses, brands, and marketers working for the tech. That's a very interesting follow-up to that. You, you, we've heard this uh, phrase, paralysis of analysis, when it comes to data, because there's so much of it. Uh, and sometimes, you know, marketers can get stuck spending all their time looking at data and figuring out what it means, what it doesn't mean, and, mm. you know, flipping yeah. it upside down on its head. Um, is there such a thing as too much data, or are we just using it wrong? What are your thoughts on all of this? 
It's, it's, it's a really interesting question. I mean, is there too much data? It's a bit like saying, you know, is there, is there too much oxygen? You know, it's kind of like, is there, the, you know, it's like we, we, we live in a world that is rich with data and you may as well worry about the sun going down. We live in an incredibly rich uh, world of data. What we often come across, and we talk about this a lot at PhD, is there's not too much data. What there is, very often, too many KPIs. So what you tend to get is all this data tends to reduce a proliferation of objectives, a proliferation of measurement. So for us, it's not a data problem. It's a measurement problem. And uh, we, when the thing that we say a lot, if, if you've got more than three KPIs, you don't have a KPI. As soon as you're measuring, monitoring, optimizing, thinking about, considering more than three things from a measurement perspective, then you're not you 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 haven't got enough eyes on one ball. You haven't got you're not paying enough attention to enough so that's going to make a difference. So so no, we we would say there's not too much data. We would say very often we come across situations where there are too many KPIs, too many things being measured, and we we work really hard with marketers to help rationalize those to make sure that whatever data you've got and all the data you got to bear, all that data is being brought to bear on fewer more focused KPIs that will make a genuine difference to what it is that you're trying to achieve. That is brilliant. Thank you so much for, for sharing, uh, sharing that. Web 3.0, been a huge topic of conversation on this podcast and probably everywhere else, you know? Um, what's, what's the role, what's the place of these new tools and technologies? We have blockchain. NFTs, metaverse, and so on. Uh, what's the role of all of these in, in reaching new markets, achieving goals and objectives? I, I agree with you. I mean, and I've I've been working in media planning and strategy and, and comms thinking in twenty years. I've not seen anything like this in twenty years. The speed and pace and breadth with with which the metaverse and Web3 has kind of emerged on the marketing agenda. It's not new, it's been around for a while, but the speed in the last six months um, with which it's proliferated, has re it's genuinely surprised me, it really has. And I think there's an opportunity here for us to learn perhaps from a bit of hindsight on Web2. So if we look at Web3 in the context of, of Web2 and Web1, and I think everyone listening to this podcast will understand that the that Web1 was the read web, Web2 was the read write web, and Web3 is going to be the read write own web, effectively, in, in the most of it. I think I'm guessing most of your listeners are, are across that. So given that, con we, think, we think that context is valuable. And given that, um, let's look at Web3 through a context of Web2. In hindsight, in retrospect, with that beautiful, glorious benefit of hindsight, Web 2 was an amazing party if you were in high consideration categories. If you were in a category with long consideration cycles, with a lot of research, lots of information, where you perhaps had an existing relationship with customers, uh, you had a big first party data set, you could a lot of data to bring to bear. Web 2 was a brilliant party. It was a great party to be at. It wasn't necessarily party for every category to be at. And I think we've seen a lot of pretty high profile brands 
who I won't name, but we have seen some pretty high profile brands say, perhaps we got a little ahead of ourselves on the niche targeting, the micro programmatic capabilities, the the retargeting potential. Um, We've seen some high profile brands pull back from that. And I think when the history of the web is written, I think what we'll write this chapter, I think that the web two was a brilliant party if you were high consideration. If you weren't high consideration, perhaps it wasn't necessarily party you should have been at, unless you had a great reason to be there. So what, given that lens, what kind of party is Web3? Which brands are naturally going to have fun and have a great time at the Web3 party? The great brands and categories that are going to have fun in the Web3 party are high-interest brands, high-interest categories. If you're in brands and categories that people are waiting for the next thing, that lean into, that are interested in, if you are in brands and categories that make things that people want to own and have and share and talk about and want, then Web3 is this amazing playpen where you can create assets and make assets and sell assets and make a lot of money from things. And you can create art, you can collaborate, you can play, and and you can really get deep and empower and embed and connect with communities. The danger we've got, I think, from an industry perspective is that we tend to get excited about the next big thing. And we tend to think that that next big thing applies to everyone to every brand, every category. And if you're not that party, then you're just not with it and you're missing out. So I think we've got to bring a bit more critical thinking to Web3. If Web2 was a party for uh, those categories with really high consideration, where we think Web3 is a party for those brands and categories with high uh, with high interest. That's not to say if you're from a low interest category or a low interest brand, you can't crash the party. You can absolutely crash the party. But if you're going to crash the party, you've got to be amazing. You've got to be entertaining. You've got to be super crazy, awesome. And you've got to bring something to the party that isn't necessarily there, which of course means creativity, innovation, which is another reason why we think that actually humans are now much more in the driving seat. Back to your initial question, we think that tech isn't going to get us through Web3. The Web3 is of communities and it's of passions and it's of ownership and it's a connection. And the tech and the retargeting and the, the whatever replaces the cookie is not going to get us through that. Human connection, intuition and creativity and passion is what's going to get brands through Web3. So a brilliant party to be at um, if you're high interest. If you're not, go but be amazing when you crash the party that's wonderful i hope i get invited to the party hope i don't have to crash it myself i hope so too i hope we all will (laughs) i hope all i hope all interesting enough to be at the web three party exactly yeah chris uh you have the unique perspective of being uh, of having a a global position uh for phd uh you have a global view now uh with your clients with your agency you come from a regional lens, a local lens previous. I'm hoping you can share maybe some regional differences or similarities that you're seeing in various markets that maybe might surprise some of our listeners. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And and certainly as I've moved from domestic planning in the UK, then Australia, regional in APAC out of Singapore and now global, I've, I've absolutely seen differences. But for me, I think what what I've observed is 
the, the global trends and pendulums rather than individual market differences. So what I mean by that is that we definitely went through this big pendulum swing towards globalization, towards global brands, towards big, iconic, global but of course, global brands are still there. But I think what we've definitely seen in recent years is the pendulum swinging back. And we've seen a, a real proliferation of local brands with real local cultural insight and cultural relevance. We've really seen those tick up. And I think that the pendulum will swing back, but I think we're definitely at a phase where the pendulum is well and truly swinging towards those um, those brands that have got real local resonance um, and real local insight at the market level. Um, and we're seeing this real amazing proliferation of different market cultures and the brands that thrive within those really come to the fore. I think what I have seen, though, is, is, is it, 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 it's not market-based, but I've noticed in different markets where I've worked that I hope none of your listeners will take this the wrong way, but I do think that most marketers are fundamentally insane. Um, <laughs> in the sense that most marketers I've come across quite rightly, um, but most marketers that I've that I've connected with, they want two completely contradictory things at the same time. They want to think new things, blue sky, create, innovate. Uh, break boundaries, break conventions, be challengers, do things that no one's ever done before. In short, they want to be famous. However, marketers also want to make the numbers, drive the results, make sure the board gets value, make sure shareholders get value, make sure reporting is in play, measurements in play, everything works and ticks the boxes. So, in short, they don't want to get fired. And that, that marketing impulse, the, those impulses that will make a marketer get famous are often very different impulses to ones that will make them not get fired. And I, and I, what's fascinating to me and what, when I love connecting with, with market, especially now when, when marketing is, when marketing is in such flux, what I'm really interested and what I love exploring with marketers is how they balance those things. How do marketers get famous and how do they not get fired? And I've seen that done differently in different markets. Some, some markets generally will come from a place of creativity, breaking boundaries, challenger thinking, and then well, how do we take that to a place of safety? Other markets might General, to make a generalization, might start from a position of relative safety. Well, how do we not get fired? How do we get everything in play? And then how do we build some creativity into that? And I don't think either is wrong, but I think it's fascinating for me overworking in markets and in regions and globally, how different marketers, different markets, different categories will balance those potentially contradictory things and square the circle on those. I find it fascinating. And, and I'm, I'm in awe um, of the way marketers are able to, 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 to balance those and, and, and really keep them in play and, 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 and generate growth uh, by, by having both those things together. I find it genuinely fascinating. Yeah. Wow. That's a fascinating answer. Well, I wasn't expecting that one. Thank you, Chris, for sharing that. Final question for you today, Chris. What's next 
in hmm. advertising and marketing? Is it the technology? Is it new media? Is there a new Facebook killer? Um, what's next and maybe what should we be preparing for? It's a it's a really great question. And it's and it's you know, I think what was it someone said? Someone said, you know, prediction is really difficult, especially when it's about the future. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing that from so, so your listeners will probably will, will probably tell you that's wrong. I remember that. So yeah, prediction is difficult, especially when it's forward looking. Um, um, I mean, th- th- I think there's one thing that we talk to a lot in PhD, and we talk to a lot of it in the book. And and obviously, if you, if you want to know more about shift, you can uh, visit um, shiftbyphd.com, and then there's loads more information about the book there if you want to find out more. But one thing we really talk to when we when we look ahead in that is decentralization we are entering an age of decentralization and the big thing that marketers are going to have to contend with over the coming decade is one of the decentralization of marketing that's going to impact environments it's going to impact how we connect with people because who owns the environments, who owns the platforms is fundamentally changing as we get into a Web3 world. The, the, the monopolistic, the um, oligop- oligopolistic nature of the Web2 walled gardens, I don't need to say who they are, right? Those big monopolistic uh, oligopolies that existed in the digital world in Web2, we're going to see those decentralized and we're going to have a plethora of tiny walled gardens around communities, around individuals, around platforms, around spaces, and they'll be interoperable. So what marketers are going to have to deal with is how they deal with that decentralization of influence, how they they deal with that decentralization of reach, how they deal with that decentralization of engagement, um, and how do marketers navigate the new rules of reaching and engaging decentralized audiences, decentralized communities in a way that is scalable, I think is is probably going to be the challenge of marketing in the next decade. Chris, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. An absolute pleasure. Um, Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I love the conversation. Thanks so much for having me on the pod. Power your advertising. Working with Active International enables you to fund your advertising using your company's own products, assets, or even services. We have over 30 years' experience connecting and bringing value to businesses all over the globe, helping many brands scale up into household names. Want to achieve more from your marketing spend? Contact Active International today.